Hi, I'm Jason Sachs. Welcome to Classic Comics Cavalcade. This week, I feature a 2015 interview I did with the great cartoonist Nate Powell at the time of the release of his book, You Don't Say, which is a collection of short stories he did in his younger days before he became one of our foremost graphic novelists. Uh, you'll hear him talk a lot about his youth, about uh, what it means to revisit work from uh, your younger days, especially when you have young children in the house, and what it means to kind of grow up, as well as what it means to kind of experience the success of um, his great graphic novel trilogy, March, which of course is award-winning and one of the great graphic novels published in the 2010s. Um, Nate's a great cartoonist and as well as a, just a genuinely interesting guy to talk to. He brings the same kind of great insights in our interview as he does to his fantastic graphic novels, which include Swallow Me Whole, Any Empire, You Don't Say, and his most recent book, which was published uh, with uh, writer Van Jensen called Two Dead. But of course, Two Dead is a little in the future for this time frame. Um, so enjoy this kind of vintage conversation with Nate and understand why he's one of my favorite people working in comics. Hope you enjoy. It starts right after this advertisement. Uh, how does it feel kind of going back and looking at some of your old stories when so much else is going on in your life? Um, well, in a lot of ways, you know, like I've been actually trying to get uh this anthology uh wrapped up for a couple of years and so it's something that you know like i've seen it on my computer or in printouts i've seen it in some kind of a finished form for a couple of years mm-hmm. and uh it's uh instead of being yes yeah, surreal or being some kind of a you know a feeling of reflection or reckoning it's just very very satisfying uh to to be on the brink of seeing it materialize as the physical object I've been working towards for a couple of years now. Uh, yeah, it, it feels like the right time for it. For sure. Finally have it in your hands or almost in your hands anyway. Yes. There's nothing like that feeling of completion. Um, and, and it's interesting too, in that a lot of your stories have to do with uh, memory or the past or reflection. And here you are kind of at an inflection point in your life, releasing a book that's got a a lot of stories about reflection back on previous times. Oh, definitely. I mean, especially since I feel like the, mostly since becoming a dad, you know, like so much changes in your brain in addition to changing, you know, in your life and in your behavior. But as far as the thought processes and and the shift of priorities, I do so little reflecting right now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, uh, yeah, it's nice to kind of be able to uh, to view a whole different way of telling stories uh, that sort of yeah embody a different place in life completely. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, I feel like I'm in a much better place, uh, especially in terms of just like losing a lot of baggage and a lot of anxiety. And I feel like baggage and anxiety, you know, in your 20s. Uh, are some of the prime ingredients to a particular kind of introspection or reflection in in those comics that I did in the the first half of You Don't Say. So yeah, it's nice to see sort of a natural transition away from that through the course of the book. Yeah, I emphasize that myself with your uh, with your comments, especially about. Um, the way you identified yourself when you're in your twenties and your skittishness and this kind of adolescent fear that you have in a way of kind of truly becoming yourself. For sure. 
it, it it's uh it's it's interesting to see that your your stories are a bit different from mine, but at the same time, it, it feels kind of universal. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I uh, I guess when I when I started those stories, especially the more uh, the more autobiographical and more essay centered ones. Uh, it was almost a complete break from the stories I had been doing. And a lot of that was intentional. Uh, some of that was just the place I was in in life. I was just kind of, I was not in a good zone. So I kind of started fresh and started working out some of the questions I had about life itself. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of that actually functioned as real life, as real life therapy, as free therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of that was valuable in making me realize that I wasn't nearly as screwed up as I was afraid I was. That, <laughs> in fact, yeah, that as, as subjective and personal as, you know, things are that we go through at the same time, like, um, people read into those very subjective personal things with a certain kind of universality. And I think the getting it as close to your perspective as possible, uh, sort of beyond a place of judgment is what helps bring out the universality and something like that. I love that comment. I wasn't as screwed up as I was afraid that I was, I think is what you said. That's so, yeah. That's so true. I it, I love how you make this comment about how you were embarrassed that you called yourself a radical. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing. It's uh, a lot of it is just like uh, some of that was like realizing the parts of the the punk rock ethos and subculture I had grown through, and in some ways had grown out. Um, and uh, one of those things that is that. Uh, I don't know, like, it wasn't until about 2008 that I really started participating in comics as a community and as a culture. And a lot of that was because I was still playing music in bands and going on tour, and that was where most of my social and kind of subcultural identity lay. Mm-hmm. And one of the, it wasn't until I, I had parted ways with a lot of that that it became very clear to me that there's, uh, there's this great pretense, generally speaking, within punk that... Uh, and it, it's really it's it's unspoken, but there's a pretense that it's one of it's basically the only subculture that can actually have, uh, you know, where people can have uh, political convictions and can have a certain kind of community and a certain kind of dedication. And it's this assumption that other things, even though you know a lot of that's based on bands playing shows and selling records, and it's based around a framework of commerce much in the same way that comics are, you know, with conventions and expos and books and all this stuff. Um, there's this great, there's just this kind of false pretense that everything else that keeps itself alive by buying and selling like comics somehow doesn't have the same footing to stand on. And as soon as I broke with that, I was able to see what just bullshit that was. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, one of those things is, yeah, the, the notion that because you, I don't know, just, trying to dig in with both heels when you don't have a real understanding of what is or isn't radical uh, of a human being or of a human being living in our society. And that, you know, you can be doing your best work and not be doing anything necessarily radical. And it's not a mutually exclusive, you know, situation. Yeah. In some ways, what you've gone from is this conception of radical, and I want to put words in your mouth, to a sense of authenticity, of of realness. And yes, I think yeah, it goes from like thinking that I that life 
in in that in that way in terms of trying to turn your life's work into something that's that's true and worthy uh there's a certain point where obviously we're all we're always searching and moving but um from being convinced at a certain point, especially in your 20s, that what you do is never going to be searching enough or never working enough parts of life catch up with you. And you realize that you are using all of your available energy towards, you know, trying to do the right thing, trying to make good art, trying to be a good person, a good friend, a good partner, a good role model. Um, like, what else? What else do you want from me? You know, <laughs> and then everyone's in that boat, and I feel like you know, pretty much, like just so much of your of a person's existential anxiety in the twenties just kind of fades away by the time you hit thirty, because you realize that so much of it is just based on comparing yourself against something that doesn't exist. Yeah, so much is is your own internal compass, which is just so distorted at those ages. For sure. Um, for all kinds of different reasons. I mean, I, I often think about how I just had a completely different view of the world when I was at that age, and it wasn't necessarily a worse view, but uh, you're just not having walked as many miles as I have now. For sure. Um, plus, I mean, a lot, so much of your work has a real authenticity, and um, political is not the word for it, but definitely it's engaged in the world. I mean, work like Silence of Our Friends in March, obviously is very much about engaging with uh, with the past and, and making sense of it. I, I agree. And I, I guess it's something I didn't think about too much until right around the middle of the stories that make up the book. That's when I finished Swallow Me Whole and I was kind of making a bit of a narrative transition. But also that's when I started being a full-time cartoonist. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's when I started you know, continuing to write and draw my weird kind of half-fiction stories while drawing work for hire the first of those being silence of our friends but the short stories in there in the middle like there's one about uh, a tulsa race riot in 1921 that was from the syncopated anthology um and also cakewalk which is written by my now my wife rachel um those are very concrete and political but are both true stories and uh it it kind of helped me refocus a lot of my uh, my narrative interest in bringing you know concreteness and politics to my personal stories but it's weird it's funny because like when I get interviewed especially about March I'm amazed and, and granted I'm being interviewed by a lot of people way outside the comics sphere mm -hmm. but people will ask me pretty consistently at, at least with book one they would they'd be like so uh, what made you interested in like drawing civil rights or like <laughs> it's it, or like even worse they'll be like so have, have you like changed any as a result of drawing this story and you know like the implication is that i'm supposed to have this profound realization uh that you know like where my brain was dead until i started work on this on a very specific account of someone's life in the movement um so i, I try whenever i can to point out that all my previous stories were strongly informed by politics and by people's relationship to power and everything um and that it, it, to me it seems like a natural continuum between doing my own stories uh, that process that in a very different way and then doing these very specific real-life accounts of people's political and social lives. 
But in a way, it doesn't even matter anyway. You could be the most commercial cartoonist in the world, John Romita Jr. Yeah, for sure. And he still, you know, may read and be interested in the civil rights movement. We're not all single pipeline kind of people, right? For sure. I mean, I love comics. I work in the tech industry. I read books about the financial world. You know, I'm multifaceted. I'm sure you have many things that are outside of all these other interests as well. And this idea that we're all in these small little boxes with these half dozen interests is is always kind of puzzling to me. Oh, me too. You bet. Um, I wanted to talk about Cakewalk because I think that may have been the most interesting story in the book to me, and that it was so subtle and um, such an interesting look at the way that racism subtly affected your wife's life when she was young. For sure, that yeah. one experience feels so much vaster than than the story that you're telling. Oh yes, definitely. Um, it's a it is it's a story that she had recalled to me a couple of times in the past, and then um, she wrote it up just as a short story. And uh, and this is you know she's a native Hoosier, so these are her experiences growing up in northwestern Indiana, an hour outside of Chicago, and. Uh, I was moved, you know, I was moved by the personal aspects of it, but also like as a Southerner, since living here in Indiana, it just kind of rocked my world uh, mm-hmm. to discover how many different dimensions of American racism existed, you know, 300 miles apart, 400 miles apart, uh, and what a radically different, you know, certain things I took for granted about, um, you know, homogenous little pockets of American culture. Um, but yeah. Go ahead. I'm sort of rambling there. No, keep going. Uh, well, it, it uh, a lot of it was since I grew up, yeah, since I grew up with, you know, Mississippi and baby boomer parents um, and even growing up in the 80s and like spending time with my grandparents in Mississippi, you know, like the, I will just say that the, the echoes of the Jim Crow South were definitely still in the air in terms of how a small town's economy and society was structured and functioned. And, uh, I mean, even when I was five years old, I still, my family managed to see a high noon town square, fully costumed cross burning by the Klan in in Northeastern Alabama. Hmm. Um, and so basically like I, I grew up with a kind of basic working knowledge of the movement and of segregation and of desegregation. Um, but also kind of grew up with, uh, as did many, many Southerners of my generation with the assumption that the South was the racist backwards part of America. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one of the things that really kind of smacked me over the head living in Indiana was, uh, just how in so many in so many ways, Indiana and Illinois specifically uh, could be much more racist than anywhere I ever lived in the South. And one reason why was because uh, it was a much more homogenous environment from town to town, and people just didn't have to interact or deal with each other, right. regardless of where they were on the political or social spectrum. And so, uh, if yeah, Rachel to tell her tale, and she was writing it, she was imagining that she was writing it, let's say, as a 12 or 13-year-old version of herself reflecting back on being 9 or 10. So she still – her character as narrator still – she was trying to avoid her character having the skills to properly reflect on the experience. 
and just sort of like leave it hanging with her relatively recent memories of what she saw and heard. And so uh, what really came out as a result of that, trying to keep her narrator from being able to make uh, conclusions on the situation, was um, the utter failure of adults in her life at every turn to sort of uh, tell her what was wrong with dressing up as a blackface fictional character for Halloween and going to school dressed like that. And instead, in in different ways, each adult only left her with a sense of confusion and shame, whether it was about her choice or even with uh, with blackness itself. Like it left on a personal level, it left baggage and a lot of questions for her. Um, but we tried to make that sort of lingering, haunting sense of shame that her narrator can't quite put a finger on yet. You know, like the, I feel like that's the kind of baggage that makes adults, you know, not be able to resolve their issues mm-hmm. decades later. So uh, I don't know. That's that's still one of my very favorite stories I've been a part of. Well, it's it's a beautiful story, and part of what makes it so special to me is that the the collaboration in it just feels very intimate. Also, you uh, you really bring her alive in the story, just with these kind of often these very kind of furtive sideways glances that you have at her, like she's almost um, evading the picture in a way as she's mm-hmm. trying to deal with the, the, the concerns or with, with everything going on. And it just feels like in a very interesting way, you're inside her head as you draw her objectively. Well, thank you. I, what's, what's interesting whenever I, she is, whenever Rachel is a character uh, as Sarah in several of my stories or books, um, you know, obviously I know her better than I pretty much know anyone in my life. Uh, and we've known each other for 11 years now. But there are these times, whether she's just telling a story about her life or whether we're working on something together, where I'll, I'll feel a little bit of regret that I didn't get to know her when she was 10 or 14 or 16 or whatever. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's, it's exciting for me just as a, as a life partner, but also as a, as a collaborator um, to be able to kind of imagine her, her being and her existence at a certain age and have a very clear idea of how this person who was, her personality was crystallized at a very young age. She was like a little adult or whatever, you know, as was I in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, there's on a personal like relationship level, it's very satisfying to, to uh, do these accounts of her as a younger person before I ever knew her. Yeah, it's it, there's just this intimacy about it where you, you really do feel like you're inside her skin in the way that only someone who has this deep love uh, could be. That's such a that that's it, there's an element of sweetness about it that makes it more than just a kind of character study. I think. Oh, thank you. And then, as um, someone who's released uh, music, you're well aware of the importance of tracks, uh, you know, uh, putting the right tracks next to each other. So you go from this very sweet kind of open story to Like Hell I Will, the race riot story you talked about. And there's so many ways that they contrast with each other. Um, One has got a very open page design, the other is very black. Uh, One is very subjective, the other is very objective. Um, and, and one is sweet and the other is terrifying. Um, 
I'm not sure if there's a question there as much as an observation. <laughs> oh, no, actually, I did. Uh, even I, I think I did those uh, kind of back-to-back. I was working on Any Empire and Silence of Our Friends, but I think that only a few months separated my work between those stories. And in fact, when I was laying out the book, I was experimenting with which one of those two stories to put first. Um, and uh, one reason why was the because they're both issues of race and power, but divided by uh, the era and mm-hmm. also divided by geography. Um, I thought that putting the real-life Oklahoma story first would sort of unfairly season the very subjective personal account in Cakewalk, but I didn't see a problem in the reverse order. Um, like Hell I Will was also, I think, my first uh, foray into having to do re- a research-based comic, because even uh, a lot of my essay-ish stuff that was in Please Release about working with people with disabilities, all the you know, factual information just comes from my professional life at the time. Uh, but I, I think even I was like working an overnight shift and I saw on the history channel, some very brief account of the Tulsa race riot and was fascinated by it. Uh, something that I don't think I actually specified in the story because I wasn't a hun- I couldn't get a hundred percent verification of it was, um, there are these firebombs that, were dropped from planes that the Sinclair Oil Company loaned out to the sheriff and his deputies to use on the black citizens of Tulsa. And uh, with 99% certainty, this was the first time that bombs were actually uh, used from moving aircraft in an attack situation, but they were used by by a a section of the American government on its own citizens. Um, Wow. And uh, so wow. I, I don't know, a lot of it, that was the exercise in like realizing that if I'm and it was syncopated with a journalism based anthology. So I knew that there were certain rules I needed to play by. Okay. Um, and that was one reason why I omitted the, the line that claimed that that was the first use of uh, bombs from the air, basically in, uh, in exactly that context. Um, but yeah, it sort of like allowed me to recognize that there's a completely different process by which you go through certain kinds of real life accounts based on their objectivity. Did that help you with approaching March, the, the skills that you built up working on this story? Oh, you bet. And, you know, of course, I got tons of help in just in, you know, having access to and communication with Representative Lewis and Andrew is just a Andrew and Lee Walton both are research machines and just. Um, I still have to do a, a good hour a day of my own research and photo reference and stuff. But, um, it, yeah, it really allowed me to see that it's not, yeah, doing that kind of historical research isn't like a magical beast living in a cave in the mountains. It's just a matter <laughs> of knowing where to go and then just doing the work and blocking out a little bit of time and moving forward once you get what you need to have. So yeah, it helped demystify things for sure. Yeah, just 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 to get you know get you get you to know how to to approach and how much is the right amount of research too. I'm sure. For sure. That's always my struggle when I write um, historical pieces is just how much to have. Um, and then of course you you do another a nice uh, palette clearer with a great story about Carlos Santana oh, and his yes. gaze. Yeah, that apparently. 
Yeah, I, I have a couple other friends who have had run-ins with him, and they're like, oh, I read that comic. <laughs> Funny thing is, yeah, Rachel is not the only person to experience the wrath of Carlos. Um, so what's amazing to me is there's like a, you know, there's a 0.005% chance that Carlos Santana will become aware <laughs> that there's this account of his telepathic gaze. Uh, and so I'm patiently awaiting the day that I will hear something from Mr. Santana. <laughs> you should send something off to his agents or something just to see what his reaction would be. Oh yeah, that'd be amazing. See, see if he... Did you like him, by the way? I mean, you, you came up through punk, so it, it's a very different sort of music, especially his later work. Yeah, I, my parents are too old to have been into Berkeley, you know, Berkeley era stuff or mm-hmm. San Francisco era stuff. Uh, they graduated from high school in '64 and '65, and so a lot of as soon as like you hit, as soon as you hit like anything that's after Revolver, Pet Sounds, like 66 is really the turning point year. So I didn't grow up with knowledge really of Santana, of Hendrix, uh, certainly of the Grateful Dead, of Led Zeppelin. Um, I've, I've definitely grown to appreciate Santana in the last 15 years or so, you know, but uh, Carlos does not really mean anything to me. Yeah. Um, I didn't even know until, you know, 10 years ago that, you know, like, that Carlos Santana is the guitar player in his band uh, and is not the singer. And, and I was like, what? <laughs> Wait, the band is named after the guitar player, but it's a whole band? And they're like, yeah, it's a whole thing. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, he doesn't really mean much to me. Uh, not that I have any, I, don't, I just don't have any feelings about the man, which that sort of freed me up in that story because I was able to really, Carlos Santana, you know, means something means a lot to Rachel, especially she comes from this very, very musical, uh, family. Uh, her parents are a little bit younger than mine. And so like she'd already seen Carlos Santana several times, but this time was a very, very different experience. So it kind of helped me put on my listening ears that I had really had no commitment to the man himself. Yeah. I'm sure your nostalgic music is a, a little more hard edged than that. A little more obscure than that. A lot of it, but also like Memphis Soul, like Stacks and Volt. Oh, right, yeah. Very, very crucial to my existence. Um, I actually, uh, yeah, like, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly listening to music whenever I'm working, but over the last five or six years, just uh, kind of to pass the time, I've been slowly curating what I dub a chronological soundtrack on as a playlist on my computer. And, uh, the, the notion is it's like it's a it's a playlist of every song in my life in chronolo- in rough chronological order that um, is embedded to a particular memory or experience and it doesn't have to be one of my favorite songs or it doesn't have to be a song that I think just totally rules but it has to be a part of the foundation of that time and place and uh, the the longer the list gets and the more time goes on, the more I am drawn to just the first you know eight years of my life, the majority of which is filled up with a lot of a lot of Memphis soul uh, and a lot of like AM you know seventies pop rock. <laughs> yeah, well, a little bit like the you're a little bit like the guy in the in the cha- story Unchained, who's uh, oh, yeah. kind of confronting the fact that he's just getting older. And that's just the way things are. 
Oh, it happens. It happens. <laughs> it happens to all of us. Um, one of the cool things about the book, I thought, uh, was that you it really has a clear progression, kind of from youth to adulthood, from introspection to extroversion, to kind of who we are when we're in our 20s to who we become when we're in our 30s. And, you know, you're obviously... By the end, these are stories written by and created by someone who knows how how to draw a story to bring out the drama, but also kind of who's had some life experiences. So when you look back at the book, do you see it in that same way? Oh, exactly. Uh, when I was whipping up new material towards the end, there were actually two extra stories that I wanted to make uh, fresh for the end of the book. I still wanted to end it with that story called Havens or Havens Have Not as sort of a bookend to the please release style structure. Um, but there was actually a quote title track. I, I had written a story called You Don't Say that was also essay style like please release, but it was mostly about parenthood specifically. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be the things that no one tells you about parenthood. (laughs) Uh, Very like, and that sounds like it would border on being cliche, but I was trying to think of, we all know the cliches of things people don't tell you about parenthood, but there's this ocean of other stuff. And most of it is, is can sound really depressing because a lot of it is about, is basically about like either you don't give a shit about a lot of things or other people stop giving a shit about right, you know, right. the stuff that just fills up your life and learning to just deal with that <coughs> Excuse me. and learning and losing a lot of the peaks and valleys of life. And that's okay. Um, but I, I worked up several different versions. I even penciled a version of it. Um, for the most part, the, the major one I did was when my daughter Harper was only about a year old. And so it involved just me, uh, you know, getting her ready and putting her in a stroller and taking a walk around this um, weird neighborhood that we lived in for a couple of years that was just filled with kind of like wastelands and halfway wildlife preserves and swamps and stuff out on the edge of town. Huh. But the longer I spent on it, not only the you know I started developing more and more questions, um, but. My, you know, your children grow so quickly. There's another cliche that no matter how cliche it is, it's always true. People, you know, kids grow and change so quickly that by the time, you know, another two months had gone by and I hadn't finished the story, uh, I had, you know, it was a completely different set of questions and, and uh, ramblings and musings. Right. And at a certain point, I realized that, you know, the the issues at hand in the short story uh, were going to be continually evolving. So I was like, this is not the time to try to turn you don't say the story into uh, an eight-page story right now. Um, this might actually be something that it takes another 10 years and two children to really get a sense of what you're asking or what you're saying. So I just decided to omit it completely. Yeah, it's fascinating how much all of that is such a cliche. Parenthood is such a... Oh, yeah. You feel like you're walking through these stories that your parents, your grandparents, all your friends can tell you. You know, it simplifies your life. The first few years, all you can do is try and get through the sleep, you know. All, all these things that people talk about, you think, I'm going to be different from that. I'm going to be the cool parent. I'm not going to take my kids to restaurants with me. I'm not going to be driving a minivan. I'm, I'm not going to do all these things. And then life just forces you it to 
on you, so you have to be that person. Otherwise, you won't survive. Yeah, you bet. And a lot of that, I think, is where uh, your concept pre-kids, your concept of what it means to have ideals and principles is very different. From, I feel like you get a, a much more clear idea of what a principle actually is uh, as a parent because you're having to pick and choose what is worth imparting and what battles are worth being fought when, uh, you know, when you're kind of serving as a template for this little human, especially when that, when that person starts interacting with other kids and their parents and their sets of principles and ideals. Um, the concept of picking your battles is just very clear cut. It's, it's like night and day. We're like, Oh, that's not worth it. Oh, whatever. That's clearly not worth it. And you're like, Oh, but this, okay. <laughs> and, um, and that never changes. Uh, uh, my oldest just graduated college. He starts grad school in June. And like even the the reactions of parents at the college grad was completely different between us and other people because of the way we raised them. It never stops being your own unique thing. For sure. Um, but the, as I mentioned, like the difference between Phantom Form and the have, Havens Have Not in the book is um, really the story of someone growing up and kind of dealing with this, uh, dealing with their um, subjective. Uh, conception of the world versus a more objective reality of the world yes. and yet you seem so much more hopeful in, in havens have not than you did when you were much younger um it's a very optimistic note in which to end the book well thank you i, I like to think that i actually that i actually feel that change manifested uh yeah a lot of it is uh at the time when you know i was 25 and drawing the phantom form, you know, when you're 25, you're still not entirely comfortable with seeing the, seeing the value in certain things that you identify with from a younger part of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, and you're still full of nostalgia and wistfulness and you're still very, you know, conservative and fearful about change or whatever. But, um, I feel like particularly in the high stress, high rhetoric years after 9-11 and then, per, you know, as we're moving into the war on terror, but also on a personal level from finishing school and moving on my own and just moving all over the damn country all the time, uh, trying to, you know, find something that sticks. Um, I feel like there, there was enormous pressure. Some of it was, I think subcultural it had to do with growing up and living in the punk world mm-hmm. uh, and some of it was just me and the part of me that attracts me to that attracted me to that community but uh i feel like there is this enormous pressure to cast aside um yeah just to basically cast aside the things that brought you to a certain time and place and so once i really settled down here in Indiana and became more comfortable with who I am. And I realized that, um, I, that it's okay that I'm essentially exactly the same person I was when I was six. Mm -hmm. Uh, as an aside, um, I remember when I was debating whether to move here or to move somewhere else and somebody was trying to give me some awful advice. The way they worded it was, Oh, if you move to, uh, 
You may or may not be able to hear that. It's my toddler knocking at my door. Oh, it's no problem. I don't want to keep you too much longer there, too. But uh, there is a uh, yeah. They're like, oh, if you move to if you move to Bloomington, it you know you'll be able to just be yourself and be who you are as a person. But if you move to this other town, you'll change as a person, and that's a good thing. But the way it was worded with this, this this notion that I really did internalize at the time that being being comfortable with being a consistent person and having a consistent identity is something that you should try to actively avoid. And uh, it was it was very toxic. And yeah. after a couple of years, I realized it was just total bullshit. And it, uh, just so much melted away at that point. So Havens Have Not uh, kind of helps bring forth that um, – there's a yeah a certain continuity in in my identity and my existence and the things that I that I got valued out of whether it was from comics or heavy metal or uh, the kinds of bonds that are formed by uh, you know certain endeavors when you're an adolescent um, they don't have to be cast aside that you know like a lot of the a lot of the games we play in the world are precisely the same as. Uh, uh, those that were brought about at that time, but uh, yeah, I mean, here I am. I, I just feel like uh, the comics that I'm making in 2015 are really no radically different than the ones that I was making in 1991. They're mm-hmm. just not about guns and boobs and superheroes. <laughs> yeah, um, I just started the job recently. I've been at it for about six to eight weeks now. And I haven't worked with any of these people before, a completely different company. And um, I've found it to be a really interesting experience in that I'm finding that all the things that I have done over my lifetime and that I know how to do are all coming to the fore. And I feel almost more myself now than I have before because I'm kind of forced to use my own um, skills and my own experience to help inform what I'm doing now. And right. it, it's a really a, a, a great growing experience. I feel like my mind is more alive in a lot of ways than it has been um, before that. That makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. It's almost yeah. You can you can grasp uh, you can grasp the span of your existence and the ways that yeah. I feel yeah. It's almost like you're utilizing more of yourself in each day or in each moment. So right. it allows you to sort of grasp the totality of your existence a little more regularly. And you're really kind of at an inflection point um, because uh, March Book 2 is out. That's done extremely well. Um, certainly raised your profile, although I know that's not um, one of the key uh, aspects of the work for you. Um, obviously, your family's expanding. You feel like you're kind of on, uh, on the verge and as you start to think about your next book um, in 2018. Uh, that it's going to be a, a evolution, but kind of a different stage of your life as well. Well, I, yeah, I think it already is. Um, I I have it written. It's about two thirds of the way thumbnailed, and I started penciling it twice already, but over the last few years, and just decided it wasn't it wasn't ready yet. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I would generally say yes, but really, I feel like. You know, I, I'm managing to stay afloat as a full-time cartoonist, and I feel fairly confident I'm going to be able to have the discipline to continue doing that. 
But it's also kind of the, that path has shattered a lot of illusions in my mind as far as making it or arriving at a place of any kind of security or comfort. Yeah. Um, like I recognize right now that uh, any, any kind of success that might be coming as a result of my active involvement with March um, is allowing me to do some very important things like pay hospital bills and put, you know, like working on the lost hero that Rick Riordan adaptation allowed me to put money down to buy a house. Um, but a lot of these things just go very quickly. Uh, it's made me very, very aware of just how hard, just how hard everybody has to hustle when you don't, I don't know, like, uh, like everyone I know who's a full-time cartoonist, um, is doing massive amounts of work and do, and so many people are doing such great work um, that I don't know, like I feel like most of us to speak about American cartoonists, you know, like we're going to die at our drawing table. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's, it's, I've built up just a lot of, of feelings of kinship and compassion um, to my, my fellow cartoonists uh, who are kind of in the same boat. We're like, we're all, We've made this decision that's very hopeful. We're all kind of screwed in it. So we're all paying attention to each other and figuring out the best way to die at our drawing table in 50 years. Um, That's a great comics tradition after all. It is. It is. And I feel like, you know, the, the, the game in that aspect is certainly changing, but a lot of it really is not, not only scheduling and thinking a year ahead of time, but also, you know, like trying to, figure out exactly uh, what exactly what to expect uh, in terms of like what your work in comics will allow you to do in other parts of your life. And uh, I don't really think there's been any uh, bump or uptick in visibility or sales or readership in any of my own, you know, my own solo graphic novels as a result of March. Mm. Uh, and so that's been, uh, I was not necessarily expecting there would be, but seeing that there isn't, it kind of takes a lot of pressure off knowing that like, all right, every, every three years I get to finish a book that I, that I've, you know, that comes from the core of my being and, uh, you know, it, it will be received at a certain level and it'll remain in print because I'm going to keep on working and keep my nose to the grindstone. Right. But uh, it, it's a relief because it allows me to kind of return back to the spot when I was still self-publishing books and really was working in a vacuum. And the vacuum has changed you know, now that many more people read my books, period. Mm-hmm. But knowing that you know, like 200,000 people might be reading March – but a tenth of that may be reading another book or a twentieth of that may be reading another book. It's liberating knowing that, you know, like I'm still set free every time. It's just me and my personal stories and the time it takes to do them. So, uh, yeah, my next book cover is definitely coming from a very different place in life and I'm trying to write it as a, as a complete work of fiction. Um, any empire, is a work of fiction, but so much of it is autobiographical. Yeah. This is a very different story, and it kind of reflects um, some a lot of a lot of questions that I have now that I am a parent, and now that I'm in my 30s and everything. But 
Yeah, I don't know. I just I feel like a lot of pressure is taken off. That's an extremely long answer to your question, <laughs> but I hope that you can whittle out what you uh, what you. <laughs> it's a great answer, actually. Um, yeah, and that goes to maybe a great closing question, which is, uh, from my perspective, it feels like the the uh, the comics industry is growing dramatically these days. And that's helping to lift everybody, particularly um, high-quality independent cartoonists like yourself. Do you see that as as a continual evolution where you're making uh, a few more sales each year and it feels like the market is growing? Or do you feel like we're more static? How do you see the future of the comics industry, I guess? Well, what I see is... A, um I was, I was just uh, just thinking about this yesterday. I was looking at the New York Times bestseller list because um, it was it was the week that reflected that Congressman Lewis was on The Daily Show. And I was like, oh, sweet. We, we got double duty on the list. You know, March was number four and number five. And uh, wow. the list itself was so amazing because Raina Telgemeier uh, in her amazing comics have just an absolute reign over the top three books on the list. And they have for months. And uh, also to look at the top ten list, they were all creator-owned independent comics. There was no Marvel and no DC on this list. Um, even mega hits like Walking Dead are these creator-owned indie right. titles. Uh, and like, what an exciting time is it that um, the top three places can be held in a Fleetwood Mac rumors-style reign? Uh, you know. <laughs> Yeah, uh, selling to a very broad demographic, but one that is notably outside what people still hold on to as the as a traditional demographic for comics itself. I feel like looking at the list last week really made an impression on me in terms of like coming out of this deck this decade of transition, and in some ways catching up with other parts of the world in comics. You know, um, also you know like. Oh, my friends and peers who are roughly my age who have managed to you know, make a living in comics, I feel like uh, the different, you know, like everybody sees that it's the same, it's the same pond we're all swimming in. So there are different models by which people are able to stay afloat. And it's really cool to see that some people are able to work with great focus on strictly on their own books and keep those in print, keep pushing and keep working. Other people are able to, um, you know, work in other creative fields. Uh, I'm thinking notably about people who are able to make a living working on Adventure Time, for example, and they're right. still just these very relevant cartoonists who are making great, brilliant work. And then there are folks who play the whole spectrum in comics. Uh, by that, you know, they're making a living writing and drawing for Marvel or DC or Image or Dark Horse, and also doing smaller works or even self-publishing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, five years ago, I thought that my the way I needed to spend my time and my energy was by being this very, very focused beam of force that was just constantly working on my own stuff, keeping it in print, and being just a staying on a single track. And regardless of what one's intentions are, I am now that latter example I gave where it's only possible for me to make it by participating in the breadth of comics mm -hmm. as, an, as an industry and as a culture um, by getting paid working for hire on 
books, some of them being for bigger publishers, getting, you know, pseudo corporate or fully corporate money, uh, and always, you know, carving out the time to do my own books. Um, but just learn, you know, learning lessons from each other along the way and seeing that there no longer is the difference that there was 20 years ago between the pond with the big fish in it and the pond with the little fish. It's all one pond. And that's, that's very, very good news for comics as a whole. Oh, thank you.